Hallo und schöne Grüße von City Breaks. Hallo there. Greetings from City Breaks. This is episode 5 of City Breaks Munich, in which after the last episode, when we talked about Ludwig II, his eccentric personality and his life, I'm going to stay with Ludwig and devote a second episode to the three best-known fantasy projects that he had built, the three castles, which are all an easy day distance from Munich, in fact, there are various tours on offer at the tourist office and such like where you can go to more than one in a day if you want to sit on a coach and be taken. So very easily accessible under your own steam or on a tour. And the three castles I'm talking about are Neuschwanstein, Linderhof and Herrenchiemsee. I'd like to start with a couple of quotes from a book called Designs for the Dream King, which is actually a catalogue from an exhibition that was staged at the Victorian Albert in London, in 1978, all about Ludwig and his castles. And there are a couple of useful essays in the book, as well as lots and lots of fabulous pictures of the things that were on display. And in the first essay, which opens the catalogue, Simon Jarvis lists the various, or some of the names, by which Ludwig was known in a mix of languages, refers to him as Mad Ludwig, as Der Märchenkönig, which means the King of Fairy Tales, the Dream King, then he lapses into French for some reason and reminds us that he was also known as the seul vrai roi, the only true king in the 19th century. So just a little indication as to um, what fame Ludwig had, at least when he was alive. And then the essay goes on to say the following, quote, The legend of Ludwig II of Bavaria combines poetry, escapism, kitsch and melodrama in proportions, it might seem, calculated to attract the 20th century tourist. And I dare say he didn't mention it, but as a 21st century tourist, also. Well, you could be cynical and think that that's why the castles were built, but that would be completely wrong. That's absolutely not what Ludwig had in mind. These castles, I don't think, were actually for anybody else but himself. Far from having one eye on posterity, he was a dreamer, he was a fantasist, and he tried to realise his dreams in these fantastic building projects that we're going to go on and talk about in a minute. The catalogue puts it better than I can. There's a little short quotation again from it, which reads as follows. Ludwig's pursuit of an alternative reality took its most apparent and most extravagant form in his building projects. So before we get to the big three, I'm going to start for a moment with a castle called Hohenschwangau, which was actually somewhere where Ludwig spent much of his childhood. It was owned by his parents. His father, Maximilian II, had bought it as a ruin and had had it rebuilt in a romantic neo-Gothic style. And I think that probably gave Ludwig the idea that you could do such a thing by an old ruin and have it built as you wanted it to be. He didn't actually like being at that castle very much, I don't think, because he'd had a very unhappy childhood and we know that he didn't get on with either of his parents. So I think it was more that he wanted to do the same. He wanted to create his own fantasy castles elsewhere. And indeed, the first one, Neuschwanstein, was in fact built quite near to Hohenschwangau. And um, if you have a linguist's ear, you will hear that there's a syllable that's the same in those two names. Hohenschwangau and Neuschwanstein both have the word Schwan in it, which is the German for swan. And swans were, in fact, a bit of an obsession of Ludwig's. You'll hear a bit later there are swans all over the castles that he had built, real ones and decorative ones. And it seemed to stem from his liking for German mythology. And there's a story called Lohnengrin, which is called in English the Swan Knight. 
And Ludwig was very fond of that story and he often had swans incorporated into the frescoes of his palaces. You might recall that when we talked about the Residence in an earlier episode, we talked about how Ludwig set about redecorating as soon as he became king and he did in fact the very same at Hornschwangau completely read at his bedroom with stars all over the ceiling, illuminated by hidden oil lamps, etc, etc. And while doing that, I think he was probably mulling over where could he go next and what could he do next. It would be a much bigger project than just a makeover of somewhere that used to belong to his parents. So that brings us on then to Neuschwanstein. And I think that Ludwig would have loved to hear the opening sentence on Neuschwanstein, which is in my Lonely Planet guide on the little section under that castle, it says the following, quote, Peering through the mountaintops like a mirage, Schloss Neuschwanstein was the model for Disney's Sleeping Beauty castle. Schloss, of course, means castle. As you'll hear as we go through the episode, Ludwig spent much of his time in a fantasy world, and I think he would have loved Disney and be very happy to think that his castle that he had built, largely from his own imagination, became the model for something else so fantastic that's given so much pleasure to so many people. He didn't have it built absolutely from scratch. He took on an existing castle and then he had it rebuilt in the fairy tale style, thinking back all the time to the German Middle Ages. That seemed to be a period in which he felt happy and a set of ideas and design that he wanted to see brought right up to the middle of the 19th century. And it's interesting, I think, that he chose not just some architects, but he actually picked a theatre designer as well, a theatre designer from Munich called Christian Jank, to work on the project. It seemed to be right from the outset that his aim, Ludwig's aim, that is, was to be theatrical and showy and really put on a, a spectacle. Building began in 1869. The castle was topped out, so had its finishing ceremony in 1880, although even then it wasn't quite finished. And in fact, it's been worked out that Ludwig spent approximately only 170 days there in all that time. It's a gorgeous building from the outside, lovely one to approach, because it does appear out of the mountains, as the previous quote said, like a mirage. But actually, the outside is nothing once you've seen the inside. So again, I'm indebted to the rough guide for a few well-chosen words. So they talk about the exaggerated Romanesque, quote, of the exterior, but then go on to say, with a marvellous understatement, quote, the real flight of fancy begins inside. Actually, unexpectedly, if you visit the kitchens first, you'll be perhaps surprised to notice that Ludwig was a bit of a fan of, of the new technology, the very latest. So, for example, his kitchen had two automatic roasting spits, it had built-in ovens, they had plate warmers, and in the larder, he had an aquarium installed so that there would always be very fresh fish on hand should he fancy that. So it wasn't absolutely totally only about the look of the place. I think that was 95% of it. But he did like things to work as well. In fact, he is quoted as saying that he didn't really care how things worked. He just wanted to see the wonderful effects. So I think he didn't want to be bored by engineers about what they were planning. He just wanted whatever he wanted to appear rather magically. So if you go on a tour of Neuschwanstein, again, I'm just going to pick one or two highlights because we don't want every episode to get longer and longer. If I could mention on the third floor, that's the floor in which you find Ludwig's private apartments. And here I'd like to read a quotation from Gred King's The Mad King, in which he describes the general style and how everything that was in the castle, or sorry, much of what was in the castle, was influenced by Ludwig's 
obsession with Wagner and the works of Wagner. So this is what Gray King wrote. Quote, Wagnerian themes predominated. The dining room murals showed scenes from the Wartburg Singers Festival and portraits of the writers and poets who had inspired the composer's operas. Everywhere within these rooms were reminders of Ludwig's hero, Lohengrin, and his swans, painted on walls, carved into ceilings and arches, cast in porcelain and exquisitely embroidered in silver thread on richly coloured and brocaded silks. Anywhere that Ludwig lived, his bedroom was always a, a place that he was very keen on having exactly as he liked it, and here he decided to go for high Gothic st- style. So there are murals of Tristan and Isolde. The washstand is, of course, in the shape of a swan, made of silver and gilt. His bed was the most magnificent creation, carved out of walnut with spires and arches and pillars and niches and really a lifetime's work for somebody. Chandeliers, blue velvet curtains embroidered in silver thread, etc., etc. Beyond his bedroom, there's more. So there's an artificial grotto with plastic stalactites and its own fountain and a clockwork moon. We've heard that before, haven't we? And if you pass through this grotto, you came to yet another surprise, a winter garden. I'm looking out over the plain below and full of potted palms and orange trees and lovely smelling flowers, jasmine and so on. And wait for it, hummingbirds flying freely. This was before we even get to the throne room, which was even more spectacular. I think Ludwig wanted to make the point that he admired the absolutist monarchs. He wanted to be the sort of king that really could have absolutely anything he wanted and had total power. So he had his throne room decked out in Byzantine style. So think Turkey and Constantinople. In fact, he himself said that the design was based on the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. On the floor, more than two million coloured tiles in this very fancy mosaic that is a design based on the animals of the forest. And the whole thing's got a blue central dome with more golden stars. A throne, of course, solid gold and silver and ivory, with a canopy over the top with four angels and the shields of Bavaria and the Wittelsbach dynasty. That's what he was planning. It didn't actually quite get finished because before every last stitch was put in place, he had in fact died. But that, that's how he wanted it to look. Okay, so if we go up to the fourth floor, then there's the, it's known as the Minstrel's Hall in English. The German is the Festsaal, which really means a celebration room, a room for a big party, if you like. And uh, here again, his homage to Wagner, more frescoes depicting scenes from the opera Tannhäuser. In that opera, if you know it, there's a singing competition held in Wartburg and Ludwig was very taken with this idea. So he had the walls of this throne room painted up with all of this going on. But then he went a little bit further and had the Parsifal story as well and the story of the Holy Grail all represented in paintings in this huge room and all of it surrounded by massive arched windows so that the whole room would be flooded by light. But in fact, far from spending every moment in all these wonderful rooms that he'd created, even in the short time that he was here, uh, Ludwig often went out and about at night. He was given to overnight excursions a bit. He liked to walk through the forest, walk through the hills, particularly to a destination known as the Pollat Gorge Bridge, where there was a huge waterfall crashing down. He seemed to like drama in any in any form, whether it was what he'd created himself or, as in this case, in nature. And he would stand at this waterfall in the middle of the night, completely by himself, and look back in wonder at the fairy tale castle that he had created. 
Okay, so that sounded like a lifetime's work. Absolutely not, because there are more castles to come. And next we're going to move to Linderhof, which Ludwig himself said he had designed with the, wait for it, Palace of Versailles in mind. He'd been to Paris, he admired absolutism, he was a particular fan of Louis Fourteenth, who of course built Versailles, and he explained all this in a letter that he wrote in 1869 in which he said the following. Near the Linderhof, not far from Etal, I'm going to build a little palace with a formal garden in the Renaissance style. The whole will breathe the magnificence and imposing grandeur of the royal palace at Versailles. How necessary it is to create for oneself such poetic places of refuge where one can forget for a little while the dreadful times in which we live. And just to further make the point, he had a code name for this project. He used to call it the Mycost Etal project. Etal, of course, being a place name that was in the quotation that I just read. So it's it's a good word to have in your anagram and because it's the place where the palace is actually going to take shape. But actually, those words, my cost, etal, are an anagram for the phrase, the French phrase, l'état c'est moi, I am the state, you know, I'm the king, there's nothing else, I'm everything. And that, of course, was Louis XIV's favourite phrase, or rather one that it's a favourite phrase for historians to attribute to him. But in this case, it's Ludwig, I think, telling us again that his building project was very much inspired by what was going on over in Paris. This palace was also, had been in his family, it was a hunting lodge, so in the middle of the forest, and it too had belonged to his father. And again, once Ludwig was left to his own devices, he set about enlarging it and turning it into the palace that he dreamed it could be. He actually left the outside rather plain, but he filled the inside with splendour. Again, we're indebted to the rough guide for a, a well-chosen description because what the way they put it is, quote, the riot of gold leaf reaches a crescendo in the king's staggeringly ornate bedroom. So if you're going to have a hunting lodge with a staggeringly ornate bedroom, I think you really need to go over the top in as many ways as possible. And uh, this Ludwig certainly did. So there were colourful tapestries all over the walls, paintings of life at the Bourbon court, so obviously again Versailles, oriental carpets, expensive inlaid wooden floors, endless mirrors in carved gilt frames, ivory, Meissen porcelain, Meissen of course being the most expensive porcelain that was only just starting to be made, crystal chandeliers, precious stones, lapis lazuli and marble and so on. All the fancy woods he could find, so malachite and rosewood and ebony and mahogany. You could have a bureau or a desk carved out of any one of those, or indeed some carved out of all of them, why not? Put a few busts around of Wagner, of course, and Marie Antoinette, so the wife of Louis Sixteenth. Chinese vases, etc., etc. So completely over the top as far as interior decoration goes. Again, his own bedroom had to be as fancy as anywhere. And again, we're indebted to Greg King in The Mad King for a lovely description of Ludwig's bedroom at Linderhof, which reads, quote, An immense gilded bed stood beneath a carved baldachin, draped with rich blue velvet, sewn with a Bavarian coat of arms in gold thread. Above on a ceiling surrounded by gilded cherubs, swags and stucco reliefs, a painting depicted the apotheosis of Louis Fourteenth pierced in the centre by a four-tiered crystal chandelier set with 108 candles. 
Other rooms, which are always much talked about, are the Hall of Mirrors. Versailles, of course, had a Hall of Mirrors, so Ludwig had to have one here. He had a thousand candles to light it up because he liked to spend time there at night. As I've mentioned already, he stayed up all night, so he needed a lot of light to help him see. A carpet of ostrich plumes, etc, etc. So the Hall of Mirrors is worth a look. And the dining room is always mentioned in all the guidebooks, not least because he had a fancy dumb waiter arrangement set up there so that he could dine on his own and his food could be sent up to him from the kitchen. And this was known in German as Tischlein Deck Dich, which means table, lay yourself, and is in fact the title of a well-known German children's story as well. He was very keen on dining alone, but in fact he used to get the staff to lay the table for at least four people. It's said that he used to have imaginary guests and then insist on talking to them through the meal. So these might be perhaps the King of France or Madame de Pompadour or Marie Antoinette. And he had portraits of these people as well. Of course the grounds had to be fantastic as well. There were formal gardens and then an more informal park further away from the house. So the formal gardens is full of cascades of marble steps and busts of Louis the Fourteenth, water features, statues, terrace gardens, all that sort of thing. Did I forget to mention the round te- temple with the statue of Venus in it? And then further away from the actual formal gardens was the park, which had a number of fairly amazing things in it, not least perhaps the Venus Grotto which was an artificial cave with a fake lake and fake stalagmites and stalactites, which Ludwig had designed because it reminded him of the first act of Wagner's Tannhäuser opera. He wanted it built there for real so he could be in it. And he liked to be rowed over the lake in the garden in a boat, which was, of course, you've guessed it, in the shape of a swan. In another area of the garden, there's something called the Hundingshutte, which was a primitive hut built round an ash tree, in which he had decorated with bearskins and antlers. All of this, again, based on the set design for one of Wagner's operas. And he used to come here and sort of play at being a medieval thane. He'd have a a, a very Germanic feast. Uh, Presumably he had mead served and ate venison. But when he wanted to go medieval, he came to that part of the grounds. If he fancied something a bit more exotic, there was the Moorish kiosk which he'd bought for himself at a an exhibition somewhere and had reinstalled in the gardens here and that had a peacock throne in it there's also a moroccan house again picked up at an exhibition that one in vienna in 1873 he saw it he liked it he bought it he had it shipped to his castle and then amidst all this amazing excess there was a hermitage as well the hermitage that ludwig in fact used to use every year on good friday and he wanted there to be come for contemplation and prayer, but he wanted there to be a flowering meadow. And if Easter fell badly that year and the flowers weren't out yet, perhaps there was still snow in the garden, that wasn't to be an obstacle. The gardeners would have to plant the garden anyway and just find flowers from somewhere and set it up as Ludwig wanted it to be. And so then to the third major castle that he built, Herrenchiemsee, which is about 50 miles southeast of Munich. Also modelled on Versailles, construction began in 1878, but when he died eight years later in 1886, it still wasn't finished. Again, the rough guide calls it well by calling it, quote, Mad King Ludwig's splendidly deranged attempt to build a copy of the Palace of Versailles. So the west facade was copied from Versailles. There's a marble court which reproduces the Escalier des Ambassadeurs at Versailles, which in fact had been destroyed, but Ludwig had presumably seen pictures of it and wanted one. 
another hall of mirrors. He'd seen the one at Versailles and this one was to be bigger. So it's 300 feet long, it was to be grander. It was extremely ornate, had a gilded carved frieze all down the middle, chandeliers down the whole length of the room, which needed more than 7,000 candles to be lit up so that they could reflect the windows and the mirrors and make it all look very, very beautiful. And it's said that for the half hour before lighting up time, 70 servants would be rounded up and set to the task of lighting all these candles. Another fancy bedroom, of course. Actually, two in this case. There was one called the Paradis Schlafzimmer, or the state bedroom, I think it's called in, in English, which he didn't actually even sleep in. It wasn't intended for him. It was a memorial to Louis the Fourteenth. so Ludwig himself wasn't going to sleep in it. He was going to have a fancy bedroom elsewhere, but this bedroom was to remind him of the glory of Louis the Fourteenth. Everything, of course, carved and gilded, four-poster bed with a velvet canopy, cloth of gold hanging above it. So fancy that, in fact, it was said that 30 women had spent seven years just embroidering the curtains. And then the Ludwig's private apartment, so he had a study, a dining room with the world's largest Meissen porcelain chandelier in it. He had a small hall of mirrors. It's great to have a big one, but handy to have a small one too. Yet another fancy bedroom, blue silk hangings, an enormous bed decorated with reliefs of Venus and Adonis. And when you hear all of this, it's particularly incredible to hear not only that the project was never finished, we've heard that before, but that, in fact, in total, in his entire life, he only is thought to have spent 10 days here. So, so much for the three castles which were more or less finished. And when he died unexpectedly, aged only about 40. There were other plans afoot for things that were never realised. Perhaps, in fact, they never would have been. He surely would have run out of money eventually. But things that he was planning was um, a Chinese palace that was going to be built on the Planze. He wanted it modelled on the Winter Palace in Peking. And he had ideas that all the servants would be dressed up as Chinese people um, and that life would follow the pattern set in the China of the day. He had plans for yet another castle, a Gothic castle that was going to be built at a place called Falkenstein. It was going to be a mock ruin. It was going to have ivory covered towers and a dramatic cliff top setting. And he was going to have a bedroom come chapel affair with a blue dome painted with golden stars. But when you look at the cost of the things that he did build, so Neuschwanstein cost about six million marks, this in the 1870s, so massively more than it would be today, eight and a half million for Linderhof, 16 and a half million for Herren Chiemsee, and the combined total of all that expenditure took the royal finances really to the edge of bankruptcy. So it's definitely mad and possibly a little sad to hear that none of these buildings were ever finished that actually he spent very little time in any of them, and that they caused him a high emotional toll as well. So if, for example, he's quoted as saying once, my chief joy in life is taken from me by the delay of my building works. And I've read about a night that he spent at Herren Chiemsee when he got absolutely furious because he discovered that the builders had been saving money. I think everybody but him was worried about the costs that he was building up and they tried to save money by using plaster instead of marble for some of the statues but he was walking along the corridor of statues one one evening and he wrapped one of them with his cane and it fell to pieces 
and he was absolutely disillusioned and mad and said, shouted at the top of his voice, everything is false. And he left. And in fact, that was the last night he ever spent at Helen Kimsey. This wasn't all that long before he died. Pretty much as soon as he died, all the building work stopped. I think nobody had liked to tell him that it was going to come to a halt. But as soon as he wasn't there to oversee, then everything stopped. And very soon, within months, if not weeks, the castles were open to the public and have been ever since, of course. So ironically, although he nearly bankrupted Bavaria building them, ever since they've been a good source of money for the Bavarian tourist industry. I don't know if they finally paid their way. Perhaps they have. Okay, so I'm going to leave the last word on Ludwig and his castles to the second essay in the catalogue, Designs for the Dream King. We opened with a quotation from the first essay and the companion essay in there was written by Gerhard Hoyer and this is what he had to say. Ludwig was, quote, a unique phenomenon of his epoch. He conjured up for himself the world to which he felt he belonged, identifying with his buildings and his fantasy personae. And he quotes Ludwig himself as having said, These are my favourite companions. They appear and disappear at my will. So an admission from the man himself, really, that he was trying to make up for all the things he seemed to think were lacking in his own life by creating a fantasy world in which he knew he could be happy, or rather thought he could be happy. Okay, so I hope you thought that little detour into the uh, countryside around Munich was worth it. Next week, we're coming back to the city centre. I'm going to do an episode on Munich Town Centre, and that'll be an opportunity to cover a range of buildings that all in one episode. So we'll have a look at the Marienplatz with the town halls on it and the Glockenspiel. Here's some stories behind those. We'll do a little tour of some of the churches and go perhaps to the English Garden, the Englischer Garten, and find out what the Japanese tea house and the Chinese tower are doing in the middle of Bavaria. So I hope you found today's episode interesting. It just remains for me to thank you very much for listening, vielen Dank, and to say that I hope you'll be able to join me next week. Auf Wiederhören. <laughs>